Uh, this is the New Testament church authority to rebuke. In teaching on church governments and administrations, not only do you cover the church's organization and then the church's carrying out of the organization, but with any kind of government, with any kind of chain of command, there must be a power or an authority to keep things straight. In your vehicle, it's called a steering wheel. Your steering wheel has the authority and the ability to keep your vehicle straight. You're the authority behind the wheel, but you've been given a wheel to steer the thing. And so anything in authority has to have some kind of power to keep things in line. With that comes the New Testament church authority to rebuke. Rebuking is the number one tool given to keep things in, in line, to keep behavior in line, to keep protocol in line. This is probably, uh, this subject is probably one of the least liked in our nation. Our nation is birthed in rebellion. Rebellion is nothing but saying, I'm not going to do what you're telling me to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And really by, what they, that, by that they mean, I'm going to do what my flesh and my carnal desires and the devil tell me to do. I'm not going to do what anybody else tells me to do. So the whole subject of rebuking and being rebukable and the authority to rebuke is not a popular one, but we have plenty of scriptures here to prove that it is biblical and we need to embrace it. So let's jump into our lesson here. One of the responsibilities of authority is to keep order and to enact judgment and discipline when necessary. As Christians looking to be discipled in God's kingdom, we should be prepared for our church leadership to correct us. And that's not just church leadership, that's leadership on the job, leadership in the classroom, leadership in the home. Anybody in leadership has the right to correct. If they're the head, whether it's the police chief, whether it's the principal of a school, whether it's the boss, whether it's the shift manager, if they're in charge, they're, what they're in charge of is getting the thing they're in charge of in the proper place based on their own protocol. And if they cannot correct or rebuke, then they cannot do their job. We understand as Americans, we understand this fact for every capacity of life, except for perhaps the church. Now, this, this understanding works best when you've worked for somebody else. And as I have pastored, I have found that people who often own their own businesses or who, who stay in the home or really people who've never worked for somebody, they don't get it. And honestly, the worst people I've dealt with are personal business owners who have done nothing but work for themselves all their life. And there's the problem. They work for themselves. Therefore, they're the boss. Therefore, they call the shots. Anybody that's ever worked for another person, and most people, that's all they'll ever know, which is fine, they understand submission and authority. They understand, hey, that's the department manager, and I just do what they tell me to do. Hey, that's, that's the CEO, that's the vice president, that's the principal, that's the district manager. Hey, that, that's the crew chief. Whatever it is, whether it's McDonald's, whether it's a car dealership, whether it's a Fortune 500, whether it's Apple, whether it's the Pentagon, whether it's the military, when you've always worked for somebody else, this is not a problem at all. This is basic. But if all you've ever done is led yourself as you seem fit, you won't like a lesson like this because you're used to obeying you. That's miserable. In this kingdom, we don't get to obey us, except for maybe when it's potty time. Then we get to obey that. That's about the only thing we get to obey. And in some places, you don't get to obey that. You have times when you can and when you cannot use the restroom. So let's keep reading here. The kingdom of God changes people. The changes that God wants to accomplish in our life will be impossible without some correcting, rebuking, chastening, admonishing, exhorting, and disciplining us. Where we're at this afternoon is not good enough. 
And we all recognize that. That's why we're hungry for God. For us to get better, at the very least, something must be pointed out. A rebuke, we, we might call this the church authority to correct. We might change the title of it because rebuke is correction with a stern hand. And one thing I've certainly learned as a pastor and as a leader is that depending on the voice of your heart, that will always cause the correction to become a rebuke or stages correction. The more stubborn you are, the more you have to be yelled at. The more uh, obstinate you are, the more you have to be hit. So what should just be a correction many times because it becomes a rebuke based on the stubbornness of the heart. Uh, we want to get to a place where the Lord can just basically say to us, uh, come, come, uh, come to the left one degree, uh, change your heading two degrees, uh, stop doing this, uh, don't do that. That's how it's designed to be. But because of our stubbornness and our rebellion and our refusal to obey God or maybe whatever, we, we, all, we got all sorts of goofy things in us. It often comes out as a hard rebuke, a smackdown, a slap, a stomp. Oh, pastor, you kicked me in the gut. Uh, well, the person next to you said, pastor, that gave me so much hope. But you got kicked in the gut because of what your heart was saying with the message that was determined to be encouraging. And so we're not going to be better without some correction. And that's why I'm a big proponent of pray yourself humble. Declare, Lord, I like correction. I like a good old-fashioned rebuke. Just tell me where I'm wrong. It's nothing personal. It's only personal. It's only to fix me. In essence, the Lord just wants to take His white glove and drag it upon our heart. And all, really, all He should have to do is drag it and just show it to you. And you'll say, I'll get right on that. But many times the Lord does that. And Christians will say, so? And He'll hold His finger closer so you can see the yuck. And we'll say, what's the big deal? And that's when he'll come close and thump you in the nose with the same finger. Well, that hurt. Why couldn't you just take the white glove? Or as Corinthians teaches us, why couldn't you take the white glove yourself? Judge yourself. Uh, so th these words, correcting, rebuking, chastening, admonishing, exhorting, disciplining, these are not dirty words. They are words of promise. They are, however, not words for the faint of heart, prideful, or stubborn. So just keep that in mind. So what about love? Uh, this section, I enjoyed writing this. Anytime discipline and judgment are discussed, inevitably someone will cry, that's too harsh, where's the love? I should probably amend the curriculum and say, any, in this hippie culture that has been infected with the plague of hippiedom for 50 years, hippies cry, where's the love? And we'll say, well, it's been here all along, but you perverts went and made up your own love 50 years ago when you had sex with anything that would lay still long enough and you wanted to smoke weed, tie-dye a shirt, and try to stop the war. Well, you didn't stop it, and you haven't stopped it, but you're still smoking pot, sleeping with whoever you want to, and won't shave your armpits. That's how most Americans view love. 50 years of hippie, beatneck rebellion. So let's look at what the Word has to say concerning true biblical love. Remember that God is love and His commandments are spoken in love. And if we love Him, we will keep His commandments. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. So God could honestly say, where's the love? <laughs> you rebellious Christian, where's the love? If you really love like you claim you love, you keep my commandments. That's what Jesus said. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Oh, so fornicating is not true love. Fornicating is actually hating the commandment. Jesus Christ said here in John's gospel, if you keep my commandments, you abide in love. 
So in order to sin, you have to leave true biblical love. In order to murder, you have to leave love. In order to fornicate, you have to leave love. In order to slander, you have to leave love. But if you keep the commandments, that's true love. Even as I have kept, kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So right there, Jesus Christ gave us the example. He said, I've kept everything my Father commanded, therefore I abide in His love. I would, I would submit to you that hippies have never been in love. They've been in lust. They've been in a stone haze. Sometimes a purple haze at that, but they've never been in the God kind of love. But that is a demon spirit that had came in here in the early 60s, and it's never left. And I like to point out from time to time, you go to any university today, and the counterculture has not evolved once in 50 years. And the hippies, you know it, from the 60s, they still dress the exact same way today. The rest of us, we went through the fashions of the 70s, we went through the fashions of the 80s, we went through the fashions of the 90s, we went through the fashions of the double aughts, now we're into the teens, and we've changed with everything. But the hippies, they're frozen in time with their same philosophies, their same mentalities. And what the hippies always said was, peace, man, which meant, don't judge me, I won't judge you, don't correct me, everybody should just be get along. I tell the story, my friend Marlon was at a hippie commune called the Rainbow, what was it called, the Rainbow Meeting or the Rainbow Gathering in Kansas 15 years ago. And there was this dude with a big beard and he had ticks in his beard. And they, they were interviewing him and uh, they said, we hear you have ticks in your beard, big old fat dog ticks. And his response was, yeah, dude, ticks got to have a place to live too. That's a hippie philosophy. In the end, a lot of people got sick because somebody started using the bathroom in the watering hole and they got dysentery. And that's hippies for you. No law, no order, no command. And there's nothing communal about a hippie commune. It's sinful. It's rebellious. They try to have order without law. And you cannot have order without law. That comes back to governments. You, hippie communes do not succeed. They're, they're, they always fail, they implode because there's no order. They try to boast themselves of no order, no discipline, no, no structure, and it always implodes. The hippie movement has struck the church very hard, even among the charismatics. And a couple years ago, probably less than 10 years ago, there was a move among some very popular Christian leaders who you might or might not know. They're not word of faith, but they are charismatic. And they said, this new movement has no head. Well, how do you organize it? Oh, no, no. Everybody's equal in this movement. They had websites built and they were meeting. It was called The Gathering or something. But then you find out there was a board of directors. So you did have to have some governments. Of course you do, because you have to handle the finances. And even the government has to tell the church, somebody should be in charge of this. It's a shame when the government has to tell the church, this doesn't make any sense. We're not here to tell you how to be religious, but this doesn't make any sense. The love of God keeps commands, which means somebody's always in charge. So where's the love? We've been criticized of that being too harsh for rebuking, for correcting. We're going to show you from these lessons, from these verses, that's being biblical. Keeping God's commandments keeps us in love. That's what John 15.10 says. Keeping God's commandments keeps us in love. Love obeys the Word of God. Love, first and foremost, loves God. Remember that the Father always knows best. His commandments are spoken with eternal wisdom. So where is the love? It's in obeying God. Uh, Revelation 3.19 says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. That's what Jesus Christ said. 
as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Where's the love, hippie? It's in being rebuked. In fact, I don't know if I have the verse in here, but Proverbs says an open rebuke is better than secret love. I might need to add that. Uh, be zealous, therefore, and repent. Notice there that the love of God is quick to repent. We've often taught uh, that uh, zeal is telling everybody about Jesus. If you study the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you see what the Lord calls zeal, He never talks about it being evangelism or offering. Zeal is always tied to repentance and getting clean. The zeal of my father's house has consumed me. He was cleaning the temple. Aaron's son took a javelin and killed the two fornicators. And, he, and the Lord said, He hath done this in his zeal for me, and it will be counted as righteousness for him to all generations. He murdered somebody. He cleaned the camp, and that was called zeal. It was called repentance. And so we need to keep in mind that love is zealous, but the thing that love does is it wants to be right with God. Not right with anybody else, but right with God. And so uh, Jesus says, As many as I love, I rebuke uh, and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Love rebukes and corrects. That's what we have to prove to get that out of the way. Love rebukes and corrects. We've been called unloving by so many people. Uh, in fact, I just recently heard, uh, we just had some college kids visit us. They said, the girl, one girl, she said, I, this is my second time here. The first time I came and sat in the back, she said, because I had heard that almost every service you call people out, you make them stand up, and you expose their sin in front of everybody. And I said, really? She said, yes. Yeah. She said, so I was convinced, and she's a pastor's kid. She said, I was convinced if I sat far enough in the back, you couldn't see me and God couldn't talk to you about me. <laughs> so at least she believed it, that it was possible. Uh, she said, but I've come here tonight and I realize it's not that way. And I said, you've been lied to. And I said, I don't know who it is, but I do. And I said, but I've only done that once in five years. And it wasn't any gross sin. It was attitude that was ruining my worship team. And it kept my church clean. But it's funny, we have a reputation five years after the fact, people are still slandering and gossiping that, which is just sad because they want to call me mean, but they're the ones slandering our church. But in the end, if I did do it, it would have been love because the Bible says love corrects and rebukes. We've never exposed anybody for carnal flesh sin. We've only rebuked, I only ever saw Pastor Vaughn rebuke people for issues of the heart. I never saw him rebuke anything else, always issues of the heart. Look at our next section, correction, chastisement, and rebuke. The Bible is very clear on the subject of correction. Expect it. Just like a sports agent or a sport, an athlete will expect correction from a coach, you should expect correction from your coach, the Lord Jesus. We're afraid of it. Once you get corrected enough, you realize God's not mad at you. It's nothing personal. You come to church, you want a hard service. You come to prayer, you want the Lord to speak to you. But until you get over that pride and insecurity or the, the fact, a lot of folks don't like correction because they think it means they're good for nothing in the eyes of God or I have failed God again. It doesn't, that's not what it means at all. When you get corrected by the Lord through preaching, through your own personal time, through prayer time, through worship, all it means is you have finally matured to a level where God can deal with what He's been wanting to deal with you on for a long time. We think when the Lord rebukes us, He just now discovered the sin, and now He wants to deal with it. The Lord saw the thing develop in you 15 years ago, and He's just winked at it. That's what the Bible says. He's winked at your sin in times past. We fall apart because it's the first time we've seen it. 
but typically not. Usually we know what it is because he's been nudging us all along. And it went from being a nudging correction to a rebuke because we wouldn't take the hint. When you get rebuked, you should rejoice because number one, it means he loves you. Number two, you're mature enough to deal with it. And number three, it's time to go on. You can lay, lay this thing behind. The Bible is very clear on it. Expect it. I, it. I don't get to sit in services like you guys do, but I would expect to be corrected every service. I, I'm looking forward to I've been praying this week that when we go to Dr. Barclays this week, I'm going to get rebuked. I'm going to get direction. I'm going to get correction. I've been praying a lot this week, Lord, talk to my pastor about me. Let him call me up. Let him rebuke me. I, I haven't had a good rebuke in a couple months. Something's got to be weird. Just shout at it. I want it fixed. We should expect it. Most Christians, unfortunately, we should say many, they don't like it. When they get it, it's evident they weren't expecting it because they quit over it. Can you imagine a quarterback quitting his football contract because his coach says that was a horrible pass? He already knew it was a horrible pass. But yet that just shows Americans are soft. So let's look at some verses here. Expect correction. Job 5.17 Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Happy. Happy. Therefore despise not the chastening of the Almighty. The Bible says you're happy. I'm not. Well, get in line with the Word. I've never been happy to be rebuked. Well, you're out of line with the Word. Look at Psalm 94, 12 and 13. Blessed. Wait a minute. Happy first and now blessed. Blessed is the man whom the Lord chasteneth. O Lord, and teaches him out of thy law, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity, until the pit be digged for the wicked. Have you ever considered that you're the adversity you're going through is your fault because of something out of sorts? So when the Lord corrects you, He blesses you by telling you how to fix that in your life which is causing calamity. Most of the time, unfortunately, uh, many Christians want to blame the devil for their adversity. We would be wise to judge ourselves first and say, all right, Lord, what did I do to bring this on me? And after you've investigated your hedge and your wall of protection and you've ascertained that there's no holes in your hedge, there's no broken down part of the wall, then you can start looking to blame something else. But a wise man or woman always judges or looks to themselves first. Where did I fail? And if through prayer you find out it wasn't you, this was just a, a raw, unadulterated, demonic attack, then you can blame the enemy. But sometimes it's us that brings it upon us. And that comes back to that whole responsibility thing. Do we want to take responsibility for everything, or do we only, only want to take responsibility for the good? That's what we have to keep in mind. Blessed is the man whom you correct and chasteneth, O Lord, and teach him out of thy law, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity. Correction will bring days of rest to you. I like to be corrected because once you get it over with, whew, I'm good with God now. It's going to be at least another month before he has to do this again. And it gives you rest. Praise God. Lord, that was the most pressing thing on your heart, so we're good. If you want to be right with God, you've got to be open to correction. Look at Hebrews 3, 11 and 12. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Where's the love? It's in the correction. Even as a father, the son, and whom he delights. When the Lord corrects you, he's proving to you that he delights in you. Now, it doesn't always look like it. You don't always see the twinkle in his eye. He calls us many times the apple of his eye throughout the scriptures. That's a biblical phrase, not an American one. 
He calls us the apple of his eye. But sometimes when he does get mad, we see the fire in his eyes. But behind the fire is that twinkle in his eye that is us delighting in his soul. And he, he rebukes us, just like you parents understand. You, you correct your kids, you spank them, but you still delight in them. You just want to give them something to be better with. And so even with our little girl, or even like with little Miller, uh, you, no, 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 and we swap Lydia's hand. And, but we still delight in her. And even when she cries, we still want to hold her and we love on her. We're still going to be good to her. I think, I believe with all of my heart, many of us think the Lord rebukes us because He hates us. And that's why we faint. Or we're shocked that we disappointed God. Let me, let me let you in on a secret. You cannot disappoint God. Disappointment, by definition, means you surprised Him. Uh, let, let's say uh, somebody in this ministry disappoints me as the pastor. What that infers is that I was expecting them to do better. I thought they would do better, and then they didn't. So therefore, I was disappointed. That does not happen with God. God sees all the mistakes before they ever happen, so He can never be taken unawares. Many of us fail, and we, we quit. Our heart fails us because we think, I've disappointed God. It didn't take Him by surprise. Last week when He had somebody prophesy over you and bless you, He knew that this week He's going to rebuke you. We think it's all over because we get corrected. And to be honest with you, it's a sign of immaturity. Just like when my daughter, we pop her hand. It doesn't hurt. She cries like the world's over. And then you make a funny face over and she forgets about it. Because she's immature. We've got to be willing to take the correction with just as much joy as the prophecy we lusted after. We've got to be willing to take the, the hard sermon that kicks us in the chest just as much as we do the exhortation that causes us to want to jump and stand because it's all God. It's all the Spirit of God communicating different forms to us. But if all we ever hear is how awesome we are, then we become weird and we become like a Paris Hilton diva. But if all we ever do is get corrected, uh, honestly, something's wrong with you. So there ought to be this nice ebb and flow of it. But many of us, we faint because we think, I've failed God. You didn't fail Him because He wasn't counting on you. <laughs> and you didn't point, disappoint Him because He knew you were going to do it. And if you could ever get a hold of the fact that whatever He rebukes you over today or Wednesday, He has watched that thing incubate and develop in your heart for months and years. It does not take Him by surprise. Let me remind you again of Peter being rebuked in a vision for being a bigot. He did not like the Gentiles and he had to have the trance. He was so stubborn, God couldn't speak to him while he was sober and conscious. The Lord had to knock him out, put him in a vision, and even then... Peter, in a vision, argues with God. And he says, not so, Lord, I don't touch anything unclean. And God was dealing with him about the bigotry in his heart. Just the week before, he, he raised Tabitha from the dead in Lydda. And don't you know God knew bigotry was in his heart? And before that, he'd walk down the street and his shadow would heal people, the proximity. Street after street, he's just a walking uh, incubator of the anointing with bigotry in his heart. And don't you know God saw it? And so if, if, if we had been Peter on the rooftop, we might have quit the ministry altogether. How could God ever use me? I'm such a dog. I'm such a dog. <laughs> There's no record that Peter threw a temper tantrum or had a little pity party. He said, yes, sir. He went a little reluctantly, and the angel said, go, doubting nothing. And he goes, 
And we know Acts chapter 10 happens and the Holy Ghost falls on the Gentiles and they're baptized in the Holy Ghost and a tremendous thing happens. They never pray a word. They get born again. They never ask for the Holy Ghost. They speak in tongues. And the last thing they do, Peter says, I guess we should water baptize them. Then he's eager to go back to the church at, at Jerusalem and brag about how stupid he's been. God poured it out on the Gentiles. We've been wrong all along, guys. We, we get ashamed of stuff. And what it really is is a sign of immaturity because we can't handle correction or rebuke. We've got to get over that. Not only are we to expect correction and chastisement from the Lord, we are to count it a good, blessed, and even a happy thing. Why? Because it means God is delighting in us. There's other scriptures there too. Probably Proverbs 27, 5 says a secret love, open rebuke is better than secret love. You can look at those on your own time. Let me show you now my job as a pastor and the job of anybody in leadership. Our next section is called the command. I am biblically commanded to discipline and rebuke. The command to discipline and rebuke. Often God corrects through his appointed leader. Now we've all been rebuked of God in private. We've all been rebuked of God or corrected through the scriptures. I would even generally add preaching. When I preach, I'm not, unless there's one or two of you I'm really aiming for, it's the Holy Ghost that's going to correct you. We've all been in services that we thought were encouraging and three people over, they were eating gravel. We've all been in services that everybody else was running and dancing and we felt like a dog. That wasn't me rebuking, that was still the Holy Ghost. But often God corrects through His appointed leadership. Certainly within the confines of a local church and concerning the operations of the local church, a great deal of correcting will come from the leadership. A leader's orders to discipline and rebuke come directly from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. If a leader is going to please Jesus and successfully represent Him in the earth, there must be some degree of correction and chastisement uh, coming out of Him as He leads. It is biblical to expect church leadership to correct, rebuke, warn, and chastise. Now, this we're talking about private stuff. I don't count it personal rebuke if I preach and you get worn out. I don't count that personal correction. I count personal correction when I have to call up or a department head has to call you up or a department head has to call me up. Pastor, I got an issue with this person in Children's Church. What do I do? I said, call them up, get it right. I count that as personal correction or rebuke or chastising. Uh, or maybe in my office or in passing. Uh, but from the pulpit, that's a sledgehammer hitting 100 people at once or 150 people or 50 people. So I don't count that as personal correction. Let's look at our, our some less, uh, verses here. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish, warn, or reprimand you, reprimand you firmly. This verse gives us some of the job description of biblical leaders. They labor, they supervise, and they admonish. Many modern churches and congregations only want their leaders laboring. They don't want their leaders supervising or admonishing. I have so many stories, even in this little community, about Christians who want to go to a church and do their own thing. The most recent one that I just wanted to really lean across the table and slap the woman, but even my wife, I could tell my wife was tensing up because she didn't know what I was going to do. But she said, I said, oh, what, what part of helps are you in at your church? She said, well, we, really, we live too far away to be involved in helps. She said, and the guys are trying to get my husband to be an usher and work in the parking lot. But that would require us getting up a little earlier and we'd have to go separately. And, and so it's just a lot of work. And you know how it is. No, I don't know how that is. I know how your carnal is. 
She said, uh, so we, we're just not involved, it, but, but we're faithful there. She said, but in fact, I'm starting my ministry over there. And I've got a ladies' prayer group. And they come and meet with me, and I go, go, I go to the church there, and we have meetings. And I thought, you wretched, wretched Christian. You can't help the pastor with his vision. You can't get your lazy rump out of bed 15 minutes earlier to get your kids ready 15 minutes earlier to help the pastor with his vision. But you can go and do your own thing at your convenience because it draws attention to you. Christians, unfortunately, they just want someone to labor among them and really give them a platform for them to do their thing. But they don't like for leaders to, to admonish them or supervise them. Around here, we hold a little bit stronger hand than that. I got many stories like it. That one fires me up, but we'll move on. Look at 1 Timothy 5.20. Well, let me back up. 1 Thessalonians 5.12. Notice that it says, Know them that labor among you and are over you. That means they have authority over you. And they admonish you. So part of a biblical leader's job is to admonish you. That word admonish means to warn or to reprimand you firmly. So we certainly have that. A reprimand or, or an admonishment is not a rebuke. It's just kind of a, I wouldn't do that if I were you. You, you be careful around that person. That's an admonishment. You be careful running with those people. Uh, I, hey, I noticed your tithing's dropped off. I don't know how much you're giving, but I have a chart. I'd really encourage you, don't rob the tithe. That's an admonishment. A rebuke is, if that ever happens again, I will kick you out of my church. If this ever happens again, I will sit you down and you, so fast your head. You'll know it's a rebuke. And I, I, you'll, know, it'll be, you'll see the fire in my eyes. It's one thing for the Lord to rebuke you and it be heavy on you. It's one thing for to be me and you one-on-one -on -one or your department head to be one-on-one. -on -one. And, and let me back up and add this. Uh, correction is where we want to keep it. We don't want to keep it a rebuke. We don't want it to instigate or go that far. Because if you don't submit to a rebuke, our next lesson is church discipline. So it goes in a sense, correction, admonishment, rebuke, discipline. That's kind of the order we see in the New Testament. A correction says, hey, um, don't, don't say it that way again. Or, hey, make sure you're on time. Or, hey, uh, make, make sure that you, you do this like the, the department head tells you to. The next time be, listen, how many times are we going to talk about this? I know, Pastor, I'm sorry. All right. And then the third time, oh, whoa, Nelly, what are you doing? Are you purposely rebelling here? I command you to get this right or I'm going to sit you down. And then if you do it wrong again, now we enact church discipline and we sit you down from whatever it is. Or, you know, whatever. We, we rebuke and admonish the worship team on a regular basis. We've never disciplined that I know of, and that I've warned them a lot of times, I'll just sit you down because I really just don't need you up there. But we do admonish and rebuke quite a bit. Look at 1 Timothy 5.20. Them that sin rebuke in front of everybody, that others also may fear. That's in the New Testament. That's in the pastoral epistle. That is what Paul told Timothy to do in his church at Ephesus. And Ephesus was a mature church. And he's basically saying them, we could say those that live habitually, everybody sins. We know that you have to have the Spirit of God using this scripture to give you the authorization. Everybody in here sin today. We're not having a rebuke session here. We understand just like 1 John says, those that sin know not God. Well, we all sin, but we know God. So we know it's a habitual thing. But Paul commanded Timothy, those that sin rebuke before all that others may learn and may fear. Uh, if I rebuke Aquila for screaming during praise and worship, I guarantee you, if I do it right, nobody will ever scream in this church ever again. Our hearts will instantly say, we ain't ever screaming in this church. And if I rebuke somebody for 
uh, bubble gum and I just stop in front of everybody and say, do you not read my Jumbotron? The guy was noticing this Sunday night, a lot of folks chewing gum and when I look at them, they'd stop. I re I've really thought a few times about, you wanna go ahead and swallow that? If I stopped and said, Will, do you not read our Jumbotron? It's in bright pink letters with double bubble on the backdrop. It says, please no gum in our sanctuary. Why do you sit there and disrespect me? If I stopped in the middle of a service and rebuked him like that, everybody would swallow their Mentos, their gum, and their dentures. Because <laughs> others would fear. I would lose the service. <laughs> but that's the effect. Even Proverbs says, uh, if you rebuke a fool, even the simple will take note. They'll, they'll learn. You rebuke a fool, everybody else will learn too. In this verse, the Apostle Paul is teaching a pastor, Timothy, how to lead the local church. This includes public rebuke. Or this leading includes public rebuke. I have a biblical right, any minister has a biblical right, to rebuke publicly. I don't see why that's hard to understand. Even, even at a protest, or excuse me, even at a public forum, if somebody stands up out of, town, out of turn, like at a public forum or a town meeting for the presidential elections, the police will drag them out. There'll be a public rebuke. Boo! Boo! We don't like your policies! You're a murderer! Uh, he'll just stand there, the politician will just stand there, and the police will rebuke him. Thump him, taser him, drag him out, and get rid of him. How come this will work in every place but the church? Because we're supposed to love. You mean make hippie love. I mean, we don't do that here. We honor Jesus Christ. This is not a private rebuke in this verse. If it was a private rebuke, no one would know about the rebuke and therefore would be unable to learn from the sin. So there's both private and public rebuke. Look at 2 Timothy 4.2. I like this passage a lot. Herald and preach the word. This is Paul telling Timothy. Herald and preach the word. This is out of the Amplified. Keep your sense of urgency. Stand by. Be at hand and ready. Whether the opportunity seems to be favorable or unfavorable. Whether it's convenient or inconvenient. Whether it's welcome or unwelcome. You as a preacher of the word are to show people in what way their lives are wrong. I like that. And convince them. Rebuking and correcting warning and urging and encouraging them, being unflagging and inexhaustible in patience and teaching. That there is the pastor's job description. And I like maxing that verse out in my church. Show people in what way their life is wrong. That's my job. Who are you? I'm doing my job. I wish you'd shut up and do yours. He just rebukes. Well, I'm biblical. You fornicate. You're not biblical. He's always nagging us. Well, yeah, urging them. Uh, I'm doing my job. You skip every Sunday night service. You're not doing your job. He's always, I hate it when he harps on tithing. I'm doing my job. You're a thief. You're not doing your job. How come, what, are you trying to lower the standard that nobody should do their job in Christ? That doesn't make any sense. So we see from this verse, the pastor, the local leadership, the authority. If I'm out of town, we leave the elders in charge. They have the same authority to rebuke, to encourage, long-suffering, doctrine, patience, urging. Because we come to church to be right with God. And though we're right right now, by Wednesday something will be off. Or something will have burped to the surface and it'll be time to skim it off. Sometimes that skimming feels like a rebuke. It feels like correction. But it's just God getting junk out of our life. 
The preceding passage reveals what, according to the Apostle Paul, inspired by the great Holy Spirit, what Jesus Christ expects out of his leaders and pastors. If ever a verse was a preacher's job description, this is it. This kind of teaching is hard today because most preachers have become wealthy and powerful and popular by giving people what they want. And as we've already proven, not many Christians want rebuke. I have a pastor because I want correction. I have a pastor because I want to be safe. I don't have a pastor because I need a guru. I have a pastor because I need somebody who sees things in me I don't see. And that will only come out through correction and rebuke. These big old fancy preachers right now that are always preaching, I, I tell you honestly, if they drive an expensive car, they're probably not preaching the gospel. If they've got a big old couple of jets in a mansion, they're probably not obeying this verse because obeying this verse is not going to finance a lavish lifestyle. Telling fornicators they're okay, prophesying peace when God hath said no peace, that'll pad your pocketbook, but it will not perfect the saints. And I'm more interested in eternal blessings than I am having a Mercedes or a Range Rover or a Rolls Royce or whatever. Look at Titus chapter 1, 12, 13 in the Amplified. Paul talking to Titus, a pastor at the church of Crete. He said, Paul said, one of their very number, a prophet of their own, talking about the Jews, said, Cretans are always liars, hurtful beasts, idle and lazy gluttons. And this account of them is really true. This is like Paul would be saying, say Titus was in Cookville. Hey, Paul, I hear the reputation of the Cookville, Cookvillians is that they're liars. That was the reputation of the whole people of the island of Crete. That Cretans, you've heard that term, you dirty Cretan? It's biblical. That Cretans are liars. Cookvillians are liars, hurtful beasts, idle and lazy gluttons. Paul said, that's what the Jews are saying about them. And then Paul adds this. And this account of them is true. He says, not just gossip or slander. That's really how the whole island is. And we can infer from that, it's in your church, Titus, because of what he says next. Because it is true, rebuke them sharply. He's not going to rebuke folks outside of the church. He's going to be rebuking people in his church. Rebuke them sharply. Deal with them sternly, ever severely with them, so that they may be sound in the faith and free from error. So another opportunity here for a leader in a church to produce sound faith and error-free Christianity. But it's coming through sharp rebuke. The King James says, rebuke them sharply. That's a command to a pastor. He has that authority, not every service. If every service is like that, you'll all be dogs with your tails tucked and wet in the floor when you walk in here. But when it's necessary, and in this case, it probably went on for months because you're talking about changing the culture of an island. I try to do that in our region. I'm, I'm trying to change the culture of our whole region. It, it burns in me because I cannot stand the poverty, the laziness, the neglect, the lack of detail, and the ignorance that this region boasts of it. It's one thing to have it and say, God, help me. It's another thing to say, this is the way we are. And it mocks God. And so I purposely stomp and make fun of our culture. Because if I can make fun of it and get you to laugh at it, you'll despise it too. And you'll change yourself. You'll start wanting to talk better. You'll still want to, care, you'll want to start caring yourself better. You'll, you'll want to start having a nicer house. Uh, Miss Amy was just telling me 
they, some, some friends of ours picked them up recently in their church van. And she said, Pastor Chris, there was dog hair all over the church van. There were stains in the seats. She said, it was disgusting. I was so embarrassed. And she said, I told Marlon, I am so glad we have a standard in our church. I don't, I don't know how a church could ever let their church van look like some, I don't know, housing project bus. But that's what Paul was doing. He was changing the culture through a man, Titus, changing the culture of the island of Crete. Because the Cretan culture was liars, lazy, idle, and hurtful beasts. Titus was pastor of the church of the island of Crete. In these two verses, Paul is actually dealing with the island's culture. Lazy, lying, hurtful, idle beasts. Paul wanted Titus to rebuke this ungodly culture out of the Cretans so they would be sound in the faith. Titus was commanded as a pastor to sharply rebuke. Why? To produce sound faith. Any church without a steady diet of correction and even rebuking will ultimately be weak in the faith. When I took judo, that's the one thing I trained more firmly than anything else in my whole life. We could learn the first throw, Ippon Sayanagi. And though you learn, it's very complex. We practice it, practice it, practice it, practice it, practice it. We do fit-ins, we do drills, lines, all this stuff. And even after, I, I did judo on and off combined for about two, uh, two and a half years. Even after all that, I would still be corrected on the first throw I ever learned. And it wasn't a rebuke, it was just a correction. Chris, get down a little bit lower, turn this way, rotate that. Yes, sir, I, I know to do that, I just, I just forgot. And you just drill it over and over again. No matter where we get in the things of God, with whether it's evangelism or ushering or worship time, we'll always have to be open to the tweaking and correcting because every one of us has flesh, and flesh likes to start backing off what it knows to do. And it likes to back off and take it easier. That's why the Lord has to give shepherds to sheep because sheep when left alone won't do much of anything so you need that strong voice of a leadership and authority and you challenge you come on let's go come on we can do this come on don't quit it's just how the kingdom's designed to work so much that even preachers have to have pastors or fathers in the faith to help them and so any church that doesn't have a steady diet of correction and there's different ways to serve up correction it can be through teaching and doctrine, or it could be just through a hard rebuke. Like I, I, Sunday morning wasn't a hard rebuke, but I said, come on, guys, that's the worst worship we've had in a long time. Nobody came to this altar hungry to worship God. Now, I didn't rebuke us, but I just kind of I, I admonished us. We're better than that. And we proved it Sunday night. So how come we could do it Sunday night, but just 10 hours earlier, we just we didn't want God? Our heart could change on a dime. That's the bad thing about a fickle heart. It, it can turn on a dime. My wife and I were reading healing scriptures last night. And in Acts 28, they, they are marooned. Paul and the others are marooned on the island. And he gathers the wood and that viper bites his hand. And the, the islanders, they be, they're instantly convinced. Yep, this man's a murderer. That's a quick judgment. And seeing as how the ocean, he survived the ocean and the storm and the ocean has spit him up, yet this judgment has come upon him because he's a murderer. And it says, and he, Paul just shook the thing off. This is book Acts 28. And it says, and when they waited for him to puff up, <laughs> die, and fall over, and when the time was long past, the Bible says they changed their minds and declared he was a God. That's a quick turnaround. 
from being convinced this man's a murderer. This man's a God. We did that Sunday morning. This God ain't worth worshiping. Oh my God, I need you. I honor you. I exalt you. That's pathetic and fickle. Oh, Jesus. Any church without a steady diet of correction and prodding and admonishing and then an occasional rebuke, you're going to grow weak. Weak, 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 weak. Titus 2.15, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Boy, you can't get past that verse right there just sums it all up. Rebuke with all authority. You have the authority to rebuke. You have all authority, Pastor Titus. You have all authority to rebuke. Exhort, even the word exhort means there's a hint of warning. The original Greek and even the English word exhortation means you're proclaiming something, but there's a hint of warning. There's a, come on, let's do it, because if we don't, it won't go well for us. Exhortation is a little bit lower step than admonishment. Admonishment is all warning. Exhortation is a prodding, a provoking, because if we don't do it, it could cost us. But here you speak, exhort, and rebuke. Let no man despise thee. Titus was authorized to rebuke those who were out of line for the local, church, uh, local pastor. It is a biblical command. You can look at Ephesians 5.11 and Roman, uh, excuse me, Revelation 2.20. We've got to understand that with church governments and administrations, as we've defined before, governments is the organization of an entity. But administration is the actual hands-on, rubber-meets-the-road application of all that organization and arrangement. Governments is just the arrangement. Administration is how you actually administer or engage the organization. You can think of administrations as the gas and the clutch. The government is the engine, the transmission, the structure of it. But until you begin to put on the gas and take off the clutch, you don't administer, you don't engage it. In order to do this, in order to govern and administrate, there is correcting power. There is this authority to correct. In fact, I may go back and add the, the progression of correct, admonish, maybe correct, exhort, admonish, then rebuke. And then from there comes the discipline, whatever that may be. One man, I actually did have to sit him down, and he was very penitent. He was never purposely rebellious, but he was just, he was just damaging things. And he, he said, Pastor, I, I've repented to the Lord. I ask you to forgive me. He said, but he said, I feel like I failed you. And I said, sir, uh, it isn't that you just failed me. You've been failing me for years. And we're just now having to sit you down. And I said, this isn't anything new. You've been failing God for years. And he's been merciful to keep you doing this this many years to give you opportunity after opportunity to correct it. But I just, I can no longer waste time, money, effort, energy, and people fixing your mess because you can't get your act together. I love you. I said, but we're not sitting you down to punish you. We're sitting you down to fix you, to build you, to set you back up. And the quicker you submit to that, the quicker we can promote you again. We've got to be encouraged that there has to be that authority to keep things steered. If everybody has the same authority, we'll go in 10,000 different ways. And what will happen is you'll go over there, somebody go over there, and when you get over there, you'll coagulate people to you, and you'll want to be the one in charge. And it'll just, it'll repeat itself by divine nature. So we got to accept it in these terms, in this local house. 
And so with our next lesson, which is called the New Testament Authority to Discipline, we'll see what the New Testament says, how you can enact discipline once people override correction. They override the admonition. They override the rebuke. At, that, at what point, what does the New Testament say we could do? The harshest ultimately is excommunication. And we do have that right to kick people out of our church. Now, I don't know if we've ever done it, but I know how to preach you out. But other than that, we'll look at some other things. Uh, hopefully you learned something out of this. I appreciate you for coming. Let's pray and we'll close. Father, I thank you for this lesson. Father, I believe that, that your word has taught us and shown us that we should expect correction, rebuke, chastisement, admonishment, because that's how we get better. Father, we are not perfect. We submit to those over us because they know better than we do. They have better insight. They've been doing things longer, and we're here to help them. So, Lord, at the very least, we need to know how they want it done better. Father, bless these men and women with a humble heart and promote them as they humble themselves under your mighty hand. Bless these lessons. May they be a, 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 just a, a, a valuable resource to the kingdom to help local churches. In Jesus' name, amen.